You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. I'm here with Rabitzko Kolakowski, of course, who is the head of chaplaincy in Waymart prison in Pennsylvania. And we have the great COVID, really, uh, to have with us someone who, out of the blue, really a, a cold call, agreed to come on with us, someone who is extremely well known, especially here in the uh, Northeast, in the New York area, Rabbi Hank Shankoff, um, who is a, a person that uh, is, is has written for half hour just recounting all the things he has done, uh, I think the show would be over. But what we could say is that he has been a standout uh, political consultant and public relations guru. Uh, he has been involved in uh, politics, not just as an observer, but as a mover and a player, as someone who understands what's been happening. Uh, and I think one thing that I saw, uh, Rabbi, that I don't know who gave you this praise, you are great at distilling things to their essence and saying things exactly and clearly the way they need to be said. And I know that you are a rabbi as well. More rabbis should have that talent that, that, that you are gifted with is to be able to get their ideas across as quickly, as succinctly, and as powerfully as possible. Um, welcome uh, to the show. One of the reasons why you're here is because Yitzchok happened to catch your last, just I think it was yesterday, your uh, discussion on the WABC radio program, which is also a podcast called uh, The Rev and the Rabbi. And it was there, you were fantastic going off on a whole number of issues, but the one that's specifically connected to us, which I maybe we can start there and, and then move beyond there was a line that you said about criminal justice reform, how things need to change. And one of the things you said struck a chord with Yitzchak and he, more instituting of probationary measures as opposed to incarceration, and that the religious institutions and the rabbis in, in charge of them need to take a central role in that. Now, that's where we start from. I know we could go. An- Listen, we are failing in criminal justice reform because we, have still de- we are still criminalizing mental illness. And that is a function of states not wanting to pay the costs of treating appropriately people as opposed to warehousing them. Uh, we'd rather warehouse them or put them out in the street or deal with homelessness as, a, uh, as almost a criminal activity than deal with the real issues involved. Um, we're not using religion as we should as a mediating force within the communities. And we're allowing, we're allowing religion uh, to die. Uh, this was once, uh, and if you go back to the um, 19th century, the great uh, French observer of American democracy, Tocqueville, came to the United States and said that this was the most religious country in the world. It was also, he said, the most over-organized country in the world. And that civic culture was a critical part of the lives of every American. And it used to be that way. And religion used to be part of that. But now we see fraternal organizations, whether they be Masons or Lions, Kiwanians, service organizations, Rotarians, Elks, and others, who would provide service in hospitals and nursing homes <clears throat> and to others, and to provide chaplaincy in many cases and counseling, disappearing and dying. The civic culture that we know is is being destroyed, and one of the results of that researchers have found is this extreme behavior on the ends of the political spectrum. What can we do as people who believe uh, 
who, who as people who have faith to change this in the area of criminal justice reform. You know, the probation was originally created to, to be used by clergy people to supervise people in the community rather than send them to prison. It was a smart thing to do. It was a cost-effective thing to do. It was a human thing to do. Why should people who are arrested for minor crimes, misdemeanors that carry no, no violent act to them, um, be put in jails awaiting trial when they should it'd be better served by uh, going to the care and custody of probation officers in conjunction with rabbis, uh, other clergymen from other, uh, other religious groups, who could then supervise people in the community and help them to get on with their lives, try to salvage what we can, and to make uh, humans, uh, have humans be what they should be, which is humans. Uh, it would be a good thing to do that, I think. So you, do you think that the rabbis of today, and, and you are a rabbi since, I think, 2011, um, do you think that they have been trained adequately uh, to be able to deal with, and, and you're right, someone who's angry, who's bitter, who is angry at the system, and maybe even some of the religious figures, do you think that the, that, that the rabbis of today, the rabbis who are rabbis of their shuls and their comfortable synagogues are able to really act as like probation officers and really able to deal with it? Is, does their training even respond to that? There are some, there are some requirements. Um, I think that YU may have a requirement now that uh, rabbis prior to graduation have some training in, uh, in social services and counseling, which is likely a good thing, not just be, not for this purpose, because the, the rabbis of today are, li- are dealing with a population that tends to live longer, therefore will experience more of the life cycle, will experience more personal pain, and or will go through experiences that require counseling in a, in a competent and, and, and uh, beyond compassionate, but a competent fashion. And I think that there's some sense to training members of the Rabbanut to be able to function that way. Not everybody wants to do that, and not everybody's capable, nor should they be. But we all- uh, Rabbi Hank, is that it should be selective. Obviously, not every, like the fellow I was talking about, uh, an angry uh, African-American gentleman who was angry at what the Jews were doing in Riverdale, we don't necessarily want some rabbi to be his probation officer and to be no. in some of the show, but you're talking about in a selected manner, there should be an idea by the sentencing judges that there's a way to remand that person to the care of the community that he comes from in order for right. them to, to help them out. Would it have helped with that person who vandalized the synagogue? Not, not, it, he did, how much damage did he cause, by the way? Again, you know, I don't... It, 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 it would, it's, it's one thing if you have, let's say, an offender from the religious community right. who's on the periphery of the community, keep right. him in the community, keep the rabbi who knows him and knows his family close to him, and this way he can be uh, helped and the penance can occur and he can, sure. be, he can be recalibrated and brought back in. But I think it's something else when you have you know, people who are, who, who are outside of the community and asking rabbis to fill that role. Were you also, you know, Yitzchak, I think, got the impression that you thought maybe the houses of worship themselves should be sort of bases for um, some community work, like the shuls themselves should Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Not just shuls, but, but churches. You know, we live, we live in a country that, uh, one of the things we're taught from some of us, that you should not take dollar bills into the, into the bathroom with you because God's name is on them. It says, in God we trust, which tells us a lot about this most extraordinary country you've been so fortunate to live in. Uh, it is based on, uh, it is, it, whether it is true as an idea or not, 
there's something that create that got created here called the Judeo-Christian ethic, which is probably an oxymoron by definition, but it serves as the symbolic cover for the way we ought to behave. And we have to get, we're supposed to get along with each other. We're not supposed to hate each other. We're supposed to find ways of commonality and we're supposed to create a civic culture that functions. What we see happening now is that civic culture is breaking down. And so it's no wonder we have higher levels of deviance in some cases. Deviance is defined by the sociological terms, not in sexual terms, but in sociological terms. The system's breaking down. And when the system breaks down in any country, the first victims often are Jews. When you have the kind of economic disparities we're seeing in the United States today, I had one man tell me, well, you don't understand. They're just not working hard. Whether that's the case or not is not important. What is the case is that economic disparities tend to breed anti-Semitism. If you look at Europe long before Hitler and you look at Poland, Hungary, and Romania as examples where you had an educated class of Jews who were then excluded from universities. Why? Because the other rest of the world, the rest of those communities could not compete with them. You know, this was an economic decision. If you have income gaps in this way, you're going to have anti-Semitism. The solution for it is not to say, oh, you know, look, the Yidden had the similar kinds of problems. No, the Yidden doesn't have the similar kinds of problems because we have communities that function differently. We have an obligation to protect our communities. And the way we do that is figure out how to deal with the problems around us. We don't live in segregated ghettos. We live in communities that are fixed by home by Shabbat and also by practice. Okay. So therefore, we still live in the world. As long as we're going to be here and we're not going to be in Israel, we've got to find a way to help deal with these problems, not as liberals or conservatives or right wing or left wing, because it's in our interest and because it's what we should be doing. You know, I, I think there, you know, the ideas and we, we've, but I think it is, it's not going to be easy, especially the way the criminal justice system is now sure. for the sentencing principles to somehow also include standard probation um i think it's it's a t- it's going to be a tough sell it's very tough rabbi i'm not talking about i'm not again i'm not a defunder by any measure quite the opposite and i am certainly not uh i'm certainly down the middle and, and lean lean to be conservative on these kinds of issues i don't think though that much is done by a, by someone who's a misdemeanant um uh, i mean you know who's Who's done shoplifting of something worth twenty dollars and putting them in the in the in the can and watching and having them do a year doesn't make any sense to me in a misdemeanor charge. I do think trying to understand why that occurred and putting them into the community would be better off. As the as the circumstances around the uh, the Riverdale synagogue uh, uh, assaults, I don't know the, I don't know the details, so I'm I'm reluctant to comment. Right, right. I, but but there is a potential for violence there. Therefore, we have a right to be protected. By the same token, bail reform. New York State is ridiculous. You cannot justify sending people out on the street. I mean, there's one instance, there were, there were three instances, I think, in the month of November of this past year, of this year? No. Yeah, this past year. We had three people arrested, a total of uh, 75 arrests between the three of them. Uh, two of them were released uh, um, under the new law in New York State um, on their own recognizance by the judge, though a violent crime had been committed. They had gun, previous gun, gun, gun arrests before, and they were on the street. And the next thing you know, two people were dead. This is Achille Hashem by definition, because we cannot go, we cannot stand by and watch people die. It's wrong. You cannot do this, no matter who those people are, right. unless, and, 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 unless it's, a, you know, 
You don't have to be a Talmud Chacham to figure out this is not this is not Chelek and Sanhedrin, you know? Rodef is one question, but watching other humans die is another question. This is not permissible, babe, under any circumstances. And, and it's not only in New York. We know that in, in large cities throughout the United States, the right. bail reform measures that were sort of steamrolled down the throats of many communities, uh, it has ricocheted back. It, it, do you have any doubt that part of the reason why Eric Adams uh, you know, rose to the top to be it was because of uh, the sense that he is going to repair that type of uh, the type of imbalance that this the bail reforms had done. I'm the idiot that predicted in Jan- January of 2016 that Donald Trump would be the nominee for the Republican Party, and the idiot that said in May of 2016 that he would be the president. I'm also the idiot that said in January of I think it was 20. What is this? This is 2021. Of 2021, that Eric Adams would, without question, be the mayor. I was quoted on it because I said the issue is crime, and he is the solution to crime. Now, the fact is that his victory in the primary, which is the one that counted, was de minimis in, in, in difference between he and the others. So he won by a very, very, very small amount of votes. But crime was the issue. Crime, crime coupled with the fact that he comes from a from a particular class of individuals, the blue collar working class of New York City. And it reflects that. And you know where his votes came from. You can see the distinctions, and it kind of reflects on some portion of our conversation. You have the new class, who are the, uh, the, the, the gentrifiers and others like them, who have a very different view about criminal justice than we might. You have the, the professional class, who want nothing to do with anything we're talking about. And then you have the people that really pay the price, which are the blue-collar people that run cities, run counties, run governments, many of whom are civil servants who don't want to be abused by police as they view it, but want to see the bad guys locked up. It's just that simple. Um, so the balance here is very difficult to maintain. One thing is sure, releasing people with, gun, with previous gun arrests on the street and letting them kill is not, <laughs> there's no, one cannot justify this under any circumstances. Yeah, I'm sure. One can also not justify sending someone, a kid who did a young, young person, a 15 or a 16, let's say 16 year old, 17 year old, we've now raised the age. Part of the reason the age madness is uh, that now guns are being given in schools to 15-year-olds because 17-year-olds or 18-year-olds get locked up. 17-year-olds get locked up. So if you give them to the younger kids, they won't get 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 uh, don't get arrested. You're talking about for the time. gangs. You're talking about yeah. the gangs. The, I mean, the gangs, wrong with that you're talking too. about the gangs have have now uh, incorporated or reached out to the younger members because they know that if they get caught, the charges are going to be less. For you had a drive-by shooting this today in a New York outside of New York City school. There's something insane about this. Those young people ought not to be on the street for a while. They ought to be arrested and taken off the street before they kill. Because it's only a matter of time before, God forbid, a police officer is killed. An innocent civilian is killed. It's only a matter of time. I, I just make one point on this, and then I want to move on to something that you, another thing that you said in in the interview uh, on the WABC. The one thing I would say is, you know, we, we've talked about what you know our community can do. It would seem that since most of the uh, the, the the people that are being uh, caught, the ones that you're talking about, are from sure. the uh, African American community, it would seem that it's those religious figures, uh, the people in their churches and mosques, that should be the ones that your message should resonate with as well, right? We should be we should be seeing more religious leaders in that community stepping up and advancing ideas like you're saying, which is 
to, we can help with them instead of them being in a situation where the police who are considered like a, an invading army and, and, the, and, and, and the people that they hate, it should be people within the, that community. I'm not well, sure if we're hearing those voices in that community. We're not, we're not hearing those voices. And part of the problem in the, uh, among black churches um, nationally within cities is that gentrification and the housing crisis is destroying much of that infrastructure. Gentrification is changing community structures without question, and people are leaving or they're being displaced. These, that's not good news for the civic culture as we need it. It's just not good news. Uh, not at all. Uh, you know, we could probably have a whole other conversation about this because there are many people that would say that the gentrification that happened in Brooklyn and other areas was a tremendous shot in the arm for the city, and that if that didn't happen, the city would have would would, would be even a, a, a much more a much less safe place than it is now. But I, I, I actually want to talk about something else that you mentioned that that caught that caught my ear. It wasn't something that Yitzchok was zeroing in on, but I thought it was very interesting. You talked about the fact, you mentioned here that you were a police officer. And one of the things you mentioned to, uh, to on the Rev and the rabbi was that you thought there should be a reinstitution of national service. Now, of course, both of us grew up in a period where the draft was still happening. Of course, when they eliminated the, the draft, but you said there should still be something just like the Mormons go or the Shulchei Chabad. There should be some way that young people should all dedicate some a year or two to national service, as we know in Eretz Yisrael, as we know in terms of either serving the army or Sherry Lumi for the girls. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, because you, know, you didn't really it expand is. on it on the program. Sure. Talk, talk about, because you talked about serving in some way. And that means, I don't know if you get compensation. Talk about what your vision is about what that could be and why you think that's so crucial. Be, we are now breaking up into different uh... This society is breaking up in many ways, and you see the implications of it um, in our political system where things have gone to extremes. We need to find unifying arguments and unifying locales. We don't have them. You know, if you think about, if you think about the United States over, let's say, a 50-year period, there were things that brought people together on a constant basis. It was shared culture. Um, you know, everybody would tune in. A classic example, during the Vietnam War, let's see, Lyndon Johnson is the president. Uh, Walter Cronkite is the anchor at CBS News. Everybody watches Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite goes to Vietnam, comes back, goes on the air, issues an editorial and says, you know what, this is wrong. I'm opposed to it. The president ought to change it. Johnson report, and you can check in the bio, Carol's written about this. I think he quotes it right almost verbatim. He says, look, Johnson puts his head down and says, I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. The point is, what joins us today? It's not national service because we have a volunteer army. It's not uh, putting in time into community organizations because they're dying. It's not volunteering because it's not happening. These organizations are dying. What will get us back on the road and at least create some mutuality and understanding? How about national service of some kind? Whether it be the draft, whether it be um, some kind of requirement that people take at least a year and spend time, whether they're pa- they should be paid for it, frankly, or receive some kind of benefit for it doing something in this country that has value to the country. Because we are now raising two generations and three generations soon of people who have no relationship to the larger portions of the country. So why wouldn't they act out? Why wouldn't they think that, why would they have any more uh, concern for their, for their fellow human? Okay, this is, it's just not gonna work out well. In my family, um, my brothers and I either served in the army or, or had other public service roles. My brother, George, is a policeman. 
I served, uh, my, and he, my brother George was a captain in the American army. My brother Elliot was a, served uh, as every Israeli does with distinction, the Israeli army. Um, and we're very proud of him. Um, we all did something to make the world a better place, we thought. We need to be doing that again. And we need to be reinforcing those, those efforts and to tell our younger people, it is a good thing to do, not yep. to die. It is a good thing to serve and to live. Yeah. It's but only you, through being with others that we live. It's not by being alone, we do not live. But you understand that it's not just telling them and having a civics course. I know you spoke about that as well. No, you, we, but but you, you, you're talking about putting into law, Rabbi Hank. You're talking about making it a law on the books that every, every, male, every male and female reaching a certain <laughs> age would have to fulfill some requirement of national service. national service and i and think the, we also had a we also ought to be on top of our educators and those who make curriculums and we need to bring civics back as a required subject in our schools at the secondary school level it is absurd to presume that people will have any knowledge of anything unless we teach them the facts are we don't are if you talk look i teach graduate political science right it's one of the things i do in my life it's part of part part time you know i couldn't do it full time i don't have the I don't have the integrity in that way of my mind to focus on students all day long. You do. Um, but I, it would, I would lose my mind. But I do it because I think it's important. And I have some life experience and some knowledge to share. So I have a PhD in political science. I like it. Point of the story is I get students. Some of them know things. Others don't. What don't they know? There are students in this country today who don't know the basic structure of the United States. It's just how the government works, how it functions, what it's supposed to do. What we're doing is we're, while, that's, while we, they have no knowledge, we're also witnessing the picking apart of our institutions. It is insane, from my perspective, to take a Jefferson statue out of the building someplace because you take Jefferson statue out, the next thing is you're going to take Jefferson's documents. You take the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights out of their places, you destroy the nation. You cannot have a democracy without symbols and action. And the symbolic nature of democracy is teaching people how it functions, and the actuality is having people serve to protect those institutions. That different question. Right. Now, the, the, now, the answer, of course, to why civics isn't being taught, well, first of all, when you and I were growing up, uh, civics was part of elementary school. It wasn't a high school course. You, you couldn't pass what was considered you know, primary school unless and, and I came from Tennessee. So we needed to know about the history of our state and about our uh, the, the, the specific constitution in the eighth right. grade. You needed to know that. You didn't, you didn't get your eighth grade diploma unless you knew about the three, how the bodies of government work and how your specific state worked. Now, I think what's happening, I might be wrong, but what I am hearing from my friends and people who go to school who use the public school system is what's happening instead is instead of learning about the system, what they learn about is what's wrong with the system. What's being taught to them is how the system is uh, is corrupt, how the system is a reflection of of white supremacy. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a reflection of a people that stole from the native indigenous population. I think that is what, because remember, Rabbi Hank, there's only so many hours. Yeshiva, yeshiva guys, yeshiva students are in school from 7.30 in the morning uh, till whatever it is, 5.30 at 6.00. But in the public school, they're only there from eight to three. There's only so many hours. And I think... Well, scholar, well Rabbi, scholarship, as you know, scholarship, whether it's in Gemara or whether it's in Tanakh or whether it is in any of the things we do and whether it is in civics requires balance. It requires sitting, 
putting a tuchus in a chair and going through what is in front of you to try to understand it. It is not something that comes through the air. One has to sit down and say, look, yes, the the three-fifths compromise happened. And by the way, 440,000 young men gave their lives to stop fascism and imperialism from destroying the world. And they did it 75 years ago, which is in in the history of the world is akin to a flicker of a match. We haven't told the story of what this, what this extraordinary country has done for the world overall. Instead, we're picking at it. So we have to have, give people enough information to balance those arguments. We're always going to have criticism because that's the nature of democracy. But people ought to have a rational basis on which to begin. You see, if we don't do that, there'll be nothing left to defend, you see. That's the problem. Right, but unfortunately, the, the zeitgeist and the, and the, and the spirit of today is what we what we're what we have is this calcified old system that is against so many and it it it, it, it is demeaning and it is it is it is anti-woman and it's anti uh people of um, uh lgbq so basically there's so much of that in the air it's very hard to just have a pure spirit of teaching civics anymore of teaching the ideas anymore everything has become so sharpened and weaponized so i don't know how in 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 the public schools that's going to change it can it can only change if 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 people are inspired to change it that doesn't seem like it's happening so i mean i i think both of your suggestions of 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 enforcing civics and also having national service, that's going to call for a tremendous amount of law of muscle in the legal system in terms of getting these types of actions passed. Can you see Joe Biden or Kamala Harris ever agreeing to anything like that? Change begins in, in, in local communities. It doesn't begin at the national level. You know, battles are fought at the bottom, not at the top. Well, I mean, I, I, uh, so I agree with I've you. I've worked for... I've worked for I've worked for people at lowest level of government to heads of state, and I can tell you where change begins. I worked in I worked for education uh, educators, trial lawyers. I mean, I've worked for them all, and you got to fight at the bottom, and you have to stand for what's most appropriate. What we've done is that instead of creating the United States of America, we're creating this didactic sense of uh, the United States that used to be America. And by the way, let's all make a lot of money on the way out the door. It doesn't work that way. It's not going to work out well. There is nothing that will work out well unless we change this discussion. And Jews particularly have an obligation to change it quickly because we have the most at risk. Go ahead. So, uh, in, you know, uh, Rabbi Sheinkoff, you mentioned uh, the nuts and bolts of what runs the community is are the blue-collar workers. And part of what uh, concerns me listening to being someone who works in corrections uh, and knowing how important correctional institutions are to rural communities for the jobs that they provide to the communities, for what, you know, whether or not we're talking about, you know, I, there's always the discussion about uh, the impact of incarceration, the, sure. the necessity of incarceration. But there's another side to that story is that there are people who depend on those jobs. There are no other jobs in some of these communities. So right now in, in Fishkill, there are two uh, there are two state prisons there. One is the downstate correctional facility, which is the intake um, facility, more or less, for the uh, for the New York DOC. Meaning, if when someone gets booked, they they get sent to downstate to 
kind of get classified where are they going to go from there i did right. apply there even though you know i'm very happy working at way downstate is going to be closed did not consult with uh, anybody locally there and all of the all of the effects that that it's going to be there the impact on the community of you know the on the economy of the community particularly uh sure. if you could comment on that yeah look i i i there is enough literature and, and information that people can look at to understand what prisons mean and what correctional facilities mean and jails mean to local communities. They provide a tremendous economic boom uh, down to how much who serves the food, who, who pr- delivers the food, who provides the steel, who provides the keys, who provides the maintenance, who provides the gas, the mo- the, uh, who provides the who sells cars. I mean, and the people that work for a living and make a living in those facilities and who have decent wages thanks to collective bargaining agreements and uh, who get a pension at the end of their service. That's one side. The other side is, why would you close facilities downstate close to New York City? Why would you close prisons inside New York City when the population that is heading upstate in many cases comes from New York City? So why would you condemn people, women and children who want to see, or men and women or men and others, whatever the, whatever the situation in their lives might be, to condemn them to have to travel six to eight hours on what kind of transportation to get to see their loved ones who are located in prisons now far, far from home? It seems to me to be counterproductive and absolutely unreasonable under all circumstances. You're not suggesting, however, that we keep the prisons there just because of the economic boon it has no. for the community around. There needs to be, uh, we talk about criminal justice, there needs to be a sense that we just we can't just keep the system in place because no. of the amount of people that are blue-collar workers that are, that are earning a paycheck there. It, there is, it to- is, well, you know, look, we, <laughs> I don't want to make people crazy, but I shall. The greatest constructor of prisons in the history of the world, probably, and certainly in American history, was the man people think is the most liberal among New York governors. His name was Mario Cuomo. And that was among that was his among his great achievements, building prison cells. And now 40 years or 35, 40 years actually after the fact, a little bit and 30 some odd years after the fact, we're now closing the facilities because there are crime reductions in some areas. There are shooting increases across the country and homicide increases. That's a fact. But we have other crimes are being reduced for whatever reason. And we'd have to look at the statistics and why it occurred and where it occurred. But the population is coming out of our inner cities. So why would you make it so that people can't see their families, ensuring that you create another generation that is more likely to be completely alienated and commit crimes? It's nuts. Makes no sense. Makes absolutely no sense. The no, difference I, between Fishkill and Danamora is about, you know, 200 miles. What are we talking about? You, know, you mentioned Mario Cuomo now, and I know that you had a connection with him. I think that you were close to him. And, and, uh, and, well, and I, I knew him. I worked for his son uh, and against his son. I did the campaign against uh, Andrew in 2002 that took him out of the race. Uh-huh. Um, and I worked for him after that, and I know him, and I knew his father. His father, um, fa- again, his father seemed to have been such a stellar person, a person of such a, a upright, truly religious upright. man. That's what I mean. Uh, what happened? Was he too busy with politics to be machanich his children? I don't know. I don't get it. Well, I sometimes I, I don't want to be, again, it's, it's, it's wrong to judge people by their children, but it's interesting that you would have thought somebody 
uh, of such an exalted uh, connection to God and to, and, and to integrity, you would think his kids would be, you know, would somehow follow in his path in some way. I just find well, it interesting. That- yeah, Andrew Cuomo has, <clears throat> with, Andrew Cuomo has been accused of things, but he has not been convicted of anything. I'm not justifying any behaviors. What yeah. I'm saying is that uh, and under all laws of any consequence, someone is permitted to uh, meet their accusers in an inappropriate venue. I, I understand. I'm just saying that Mario was, was very far from being someone who was drenched in scandal. He was someone who, when you heard him speak at the Democratic Convention, you almost felt that you were listening to an embodiment of St. Francis himself. At least that's the he way was a, I felt. He was an extra- extraordinary orator. He was also a man of great uh, capacity to negotiate compromise. I, was, I passed the Forest Hills uh, housing project the other day. Um, and um, I remember in the early part of my life, the great battle over, over it and how it was reduced in size. And now Mario Cuomo, Mario Cuomo was the man who negotiated that, that compromise. Well, he, was, know, he had the capacity to get people in a room and to talk sense to them. You know, as we as was exhibited by Lincoln as well. You know, and again, it's not only uh, Doris Kern's book, but you know Spielberg's film. I think emphasized mm-hmm. that 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 was part of Lincoln's greatness as well. It wasn't that he was a, a totally in the sky uh, thinker, but he was someone that he wasn't Gandhi. He was somebody who was actually able to get stuff done. And that's it's, it's unfortunate that we don't have leaders like that. You know, um, Rabbi Hank. You know, you've been you've definitely like you say you've been uh, contacted me. He said. Do you know about Rabbi Hank Shankov? And of course, Shankov, of course, is a, is a, is a, is a very illustrious Jewish name. Um, mm-hmm. And you're and you're and you're Tzvi, obviously. That that's what you're. Yes, I am. That's how you get called up to the Torah. Like you're you're Smicha from Rabbi um, um, Rabbi Yaroslavsky. Rabbi Yaroslavsky, I'm sure says says Tzvi on it. Absolutely, um, I have yeah. to do that right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, where does Hank come from? Is it? It's not Hank Greenberg, is it? No, 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 no. Simple. My mother. Um, and my grandmother hated each other. My grandmother, my father's uh, mother, may she rest in peace. In other words, the and, mother and uh, the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law. Well, it was, it was more complicated than that. But just a quick blush. My mother insisted that I be called Henry, and my grandmother insisted that I be called Hank and uh-huh. Hanky. And guess what? She won. <laughs> I see. I see. Maybe she had an affinity towards uh, the great Detroit slugger. I don't know. But uh, you know, he was uh, Hank Greenberg was quite something when you put him in his con- contextual in his time. I, I would say he was uh, he was much more than something. Compare Hank Greenberg to some of the sports figures. Compare Hank Greenberg to the sports figures of today. Obviously, the world. Compare Sandy Koufax, who took off on Yom Kippur. Yeah. To the sports figures today. Yes. Compare yes, him yes. and his and his extraordinary capacity. And his arm burning out at such a young age, and yet he continued to be a force in American sports. And I would say the greatest thing about Sandy, uh, in my mind, was that he, when you retire, that's it. You don't need to keep on being a a public persona. You know, today there is this, there is, there is the illness of being a celebrity that people can't keep it down, right? You have to keep coming back and you have to keep writing books. You have to keep on being there. I think part of but, but not to be a celebrity is to be irrelevant. That's the point. With the internet and, and, 20, and the 24-hour news cycle, to not be a celebrity is to be a no one. To not create a persona is to be forgotten. You know, we, we, we don't have, not everybody can write a great book. Not everybody can be an extraordinary religious figure or a, low, or a figure of, of, of great memory. Um, so we try, you know, 
It's a compensatory tool. And with the 24-hour news cycle, celebrities are created because without them, the 24-hour news cycle has nothing to broadcast. Again, the cult of celebrity is something that's been growing for many, many years. The the Chiddush is that you could be a celebrity now without any talents whatsoever, just by the fact that you have a YouTube channel and and people seem to be attracted to it. But you don't have to have one one mashu of talent uh, at all. And and unfortunately, I think that what that has fed into uh, Rabbi Hank, is the idea that you could all be your own personal celebrity with your Facebook, with your Instagram. You, you, you be your personal god. You become your own personal celebrity to your group, and you become you obsessed become, with you become it. A, you become a god to the people that worship you within that context. You become an influencer based on the fact that you just became an influencer, having no standing whatsoever to be influencing anything. You can create a whole moral structure that is that is vapid or not, and have it responded to by a select group of people. The danger here is that uh, there is no danger. The idea of just retweeting stuff. It used to be, if you wanted to make a name for yourself, you had to think, of course, you know, uh, you, know you, could, you could get caught for plagiarizing, but you had to be a thinker. You had to at least articulate ideas. You had to put something out there. Today, all you need to do is to be able to troll and to be able to just retweet or re uh, or, or just copy and paste and say this is some of the stuff that means something to me, and all of a sudden none of it is it comes originally from your own mind, but it becomes sort of what your status is and what you are you are considering important. It really is counter towards personal growth, personal intellectual achievement, which leads me to my last question here because. Sure. Um, you weren't always Rabbi Hank, right? This is something no, that occurred. I mean, yeah, so, so what's I was, I, my mother was 15 when I was born. My father was 19. Yeah. I, uh, I, was, I dropped out of high school at 16. I had no place to live. I had no money. I had, no, I had nothing. Um, so, my stepfather was abusive. I used to fight him. He used to fight me out the door, down the street. Um, I used to knock on store doors to try to find a place to make a buck from the time I was 12 years old. So I had no shots. I had no opportunities. I suspected that I would, you know, I was a, I was unionized in restaurant county man, deli industry in those years, local 60, some may recall. I thought that would be my life. Uh, I took civil service tests. I thought that would be my life. I suspected that I would drink myself to death or come home and, uh, you know, shoot her and me at the same time with my off-duty gun. I mean, I had, whoever the woman was, I was bound to marry. I saw extraordinary, terrible things that some would think terrible. And to me, they would just fell off my back. The, it's not that my story is a model for anybody. I would, I would hope that it is not. Um, I made some decisions. I married the second time around. Uh, I married a terrific woman. I have wonderful children. I have an extraordinary life. And I was able, based upon skill, to build a career in, a, in an industry that didn't exist, essentially. It was a new world. So I was very fortunate. And I was also fortunate because I was reasonably smart. And um, I woke up one day and I, someone said to me... Uh, I was at a fundraising thing. I raised some money for a synagogue and uh, one of the uh, introducers on the video said, you know, maybe Hank always wanted to be a rabbi. I bet that Hank always wanted to be a rabbi. The truth was when I was young, I did. But, uh, but you know, I wound up living in a, I came, I was, I had to live with a, I was taken by a family uh, in upstate New York uh, in order for me to finish uh, high school. People that have been nice to me over the years. And then I came back to New York City. I lived in a, uh, in a basement. Um, and worked worked full time and went to college full time and and if it had if the university had been free I would have never a city university had been free I would have never gone to college no question in my mind 
if the government hadn't paid for my my bachelor's, my first master's, I would have never done any of that. So I am I am uh, I am a grateful person. I I am grateful to uh, Hashem because there must be some miracle that kept me alive. And I dealt with some pretty tough people when I was in my previous line of work, Castelco um, killers. So I'm very grateful to God, and I and I have no idea why um, I was bestowed this luck and this uh, this gratitude that I have. And I have no idea why any of this occurred. And it's just, I never thought any of it through. I've never thought anything through until the last 10 years or so um, when I when I first began anything. So now, you know, I, I live the kind of life that uh, I wonder if that's the kind of life I want to lead. I think uh, people should be thinking about this all the time. I mean, I learn, I do what I, I so, and I don't expect so, any pass so, on the back for it. So what spurred you to actually, not only to take up study but to actually be in a program that would result in uh a awarding of smicha because i understand I, i'm not that familiar with it but rabbi yaroslav uh rabbi yaroslavsky i think is is quite a well-known chabad uh mashpia he's one of the most influential ones in eretz Yisrael. um he's uh so what is it that spurred you to actually not just i want to find out about my 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 religion and find out about and study why did you actually want to achieve that when, level when my well when my son isaac was born i'd want to be a rabbi when i was very young but that was not it was born i had to make a decision um all the things i'd been and done were all well and good but um being a religious zionist being being a uh, being a uh being a right-wing Zionist was not sufficient. My parents uh, met on the, my, like I said, my mother was 15, my father was 19. They met at a Beitar meeting. So it puts things in context. That's, whatever I got from them was very little because um, I didn't live with them in an intact, I didn't live in an intact family from the time I was probably five until I met my present wife, you know, Debbie Scheinkow. So it's a duckless by any measure. But that being said, what spurred me? Um, I wanted my children to see something extraordinary in their lives. And I wanted to make sure that they would keep the responsibility that they had to the Jewish people and to our future. And the guarantors of the future are our children. There are no other guarantors. Um, and I just did it. And someone, it was a challenge. Uh, Rabbi, my, 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 my Rusa for Smicha and, and so I started Dayanuth with uh, Rabbi Yisrael Fried said, you know, you want to do it? And I just uh, did it. And so, I, I was prepared, so and I went forward. And, it, and I, then at the same time, I finished the doctorate in the same period of time. So he <laughs> you said, know, you know, listen, I couldn't work, leave it alone. Uh, you're working on your doctorate and your smicha at the same time. I did them, yeah. I, I was, I, I, I got my smicha before I finished my PhD. And then I finished my PhD. I defended the dissertation. That was that. So, you know, obviously, you know, again, smicha is different among different institutions, but going through the process, did it, did it stir within you a love for a certain uh, approach or a certain area of Jewish law that you really love to sink your teeth into? Is there anything that, that, that you know, ah, I, like your, 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 your mouth waters? I mean, generally, when you love something, there are certain areas. I like to read Beit Shmuel. You think that's nuts, but I like to do it. I like to see what the Chachmach Lokit says about something. I'm interested in these things because why? Because I'm trying to figure out, you know, if you look at, if you look at, the, at the Shulchan Aruch, how men, men, extraordinary people, while Chemnetsky was running around killing one third of world Jewry at the time, could somehow in their hearts never stray that they found the, the where they found it from, I can never know, to get pieces of paper. And there were no ballpoint pens. They had to find ink and something to write with and something to write on. 
to come up with the most extraordinary means of explaining why we should be doing the things we can do it the best we can and why, if we can't, we should try anyway. That is an extraordinary statement. Well, you, you mentioned Ratzkutzvi, which, of course, Tzviki Reisman, who is one of the... And I like to do that. I mean, that's, for me, that's the, that to me is a great day. That is, that, the, the Rambam is a great day. I mean, I said, I mean, you that's know, a great that's model. a great day. Yeah, These well, are what I like to do. Right. You know, I wish there's a part of me that wishes I had had this as a young person. You know, I would have been a great rabbi, maybe, or I would have been a lousy rabbi, maybe, who knows. But I am grateful, ultimately, for what I was able to do with what I was given. And I was given very little, except I was given a lot. There is no Jew with no background. The Lubavitcher Rebbe would tell you. For a Jew to say he has no background is ridiculous. We have the blood of Avram Yitzchak Yaakov running through our veins, which tells us that, you know, again, in this week's Pasha, what do we have? We have Yaakov, we have the angel, and, and he says the four, of, of, the, of, one, of our, one of our forefathers says, look, he says to you right there, he says, this place that I am on, this is God's place. The question of all the things I've seen, you know, I saw guys, you know, I saw the most extraordinary, terrible things and some of the most wonderful things in my life. But, you know, it's all God's place. And the fact that I'm alive and able to do this is a great miracle by definition. And, and I would say and to, I to strive not only to stay at the bottom of the ladder, but to actually to go up uh, to mm. that, to go up that sulam, and to really just relish and, and enjoy uh, the Ava of Torah. We all know that that is, in many ways, a society that is built on Ava Satira, you're going to have a lot less criminality. A society where, which has such a, um, an option for people, an option, an intellectual option, which is so lively, so vivid, so brilliant, uh, is, is, is a society. And of course, that's the challenge, is to making it relevant well, to enough people. But When we say Elu Devarim in the morning, right? What does it say at the bottom? The Talmud Torah, Why? Why? Because it forces you to understand your place. And if you will understand your place, you will be able to do the most extraordinary things. That's well, the difference. Well, that it bespeaks and it indicates, uh, Rabbi Hank, that. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.